I'm Simon Rimmer and this is Grilling, a brand new podcast brought to you in association with Weber Barbecues. I'm going to grill world-famous chefs about their passion for cooking. We'll learn about their creative process, which hopefully might encourage you to try some new things in the kitchen. And we'll also be talking about outdoor cooking and using your barbecue to get fantastic flavours this autumn and winter. We've got a little recipe challenge for all of our chefs too. And we'll be giving away a state-of-the-art Weber barbecue in every single episode. Among those we'll be grilling in the coming weeks are Tom Kerridge, the Hairy Bikers, Gokwan and Rachel Koo. But today, I'm joined by the one and only Nadia Hussain. Now, Nadia, of course, rose to fame after winning the Great British Bake Off in 2015. And since then, has gone on to become a hugely popular TV presenter and author. Her latest book, which is entitled Nadia Bakes, is out now. Now, it's also fair to say she's something of a national treasure. In 2017, she was named by Debrett as one of the 500 most influential people in the UK, which is quite a meteoric rise from her humble Luton origins. Nadia, that's a nice intro, isn't it? That was not bad, was it? It made me, it made me cackle a little bit when you said national treasure. I was like, get off, get lost. <laughs> but I think you are, don't you think? I think that I don't know anybody in the world who has a bad word to say about me. Like, you know, I, I've known you for a long time, since, since you kind of won. You should speak to my dad. Or your kids. All my kids, yes. <laughs> Outside of that, then you, you are incredibly proper. I want to take you to a very specific point, though, at the start of this. So you won Bake Off, and you knew about that for, for how long before the show aired? Um, six, I'm going to say about six weeks. I mean, had I known that life was going to change so much, I'd have slept a lot <laughs> because sleep is, does not come easy anymore. But we had about six weeks. So, so from the moment we'd, I'd won, I got the trophy, got it home. And it was a weird time in our life because we were selling the house at the time and not really knowing where we were going to move. So we were selling the house. And I had to wrap this trophy up in a suitcase and did a Russian dolls thing of a suitcase in a suitcase in a suitcase because, you know, we were, we were, we had people coming to view the house while I was on television. So it was really weird. But there were six weeks of nothing until that moment where your names hit the newspapers and everyone knows that you are going to be on the bake off. And that's kind of where it all just snowballed I suppose. So that next day right so you've had your six weeks of kind of incubation waiting for everybody to know that you are the winner. That next day what happened? It must have been crazy. Well I was very new to kind of social media and and it was I suppose I think when you I think once you become used to having a camera in your face and I'm not saying I was by any means used to having a camera in my face it was bizarre always while I was filming but it's that you become quite naive to the fact that other people are going to see it you just become you just kind of in this you must know what I'm saying like you must know what I mean it's like once you're on camera you kind of almost forget the fact that people are going to watch it and you just kind of do your thing and I didn't really think about the fact that this is the biggest baking show in the country and that millions of people are going to watch it and there I was sort of six weeks later and my you know there was a headline it was like it all over the newspapers uh, when our names were announced to the public and I hadn't really thought about the fact that you know other people are going to see this and the, the thing that I kind of remember it, which was poignant and difficult at the same time was we had all these descriptions under each baker and mine was housewife. And then, you know, I did made the biggest mistake of reading comments uh, that people had left behind online and comments on social media. And there was this conversation about me being the only housewife amongst them and, and that I was, um, you know, I was on benefits and that I was a scrounger and really not very nice comments. 
and it hadn't even aired, not even the first episode. And I just kind of went into a bubble and thought to myself, what on earth have I done? But I suppose that's maybe an issue with any competition like that. And I think all the things you said then make real sense. I suppose my route into telly was different. I made the decision to kind of do stuff on telly. Whereas you entered the competition, this, well, somebody entered for you, your husband entered for you, thinking this might be fun. Do you feel maybe with hindsight that when you enter something like Bake Off, that there should be almost a warning, you know, that, listen, you know what, you will become public property. If you do well in this, you are no longer Nardi the housewife, Nardi the mum, Nardi the wife. You are suddenly, you are national property and you, your, your, your privacy is gone. I think there, there were definitely, we had lots of meetings and lots of chats about the fact that, you know, you've got to be careful what you say and, and you, know, you know, are there any skeletons in your closet? We had all of these conversations. Is there anything you need to talk about? And I remember having these conversations and I kind of looking into the room thinking, you're all mad. I don't know what's going on here, but <laughs> why do we need to talk? And I didn't understand the depth of the situation. I didn't understand. I suppose I was incredibly naive. And, and the truth is, I think I was so naive to the actual situation because I didn't go in it for a career. I didn't go into Bake Off in the hope to work in television or, or make a career out of it. I went into it because my husband knew I was suffering so badly with my anxiety and my panic that he just said, you have to do something for you now. Like you've spent eight, 10 years looking after our family. I just think you need to do something just by yourself. And so he figured the biggest baking show in the country would be the way to do it. You know, it, it, for me, I laugh at it now. And I think, what were you trying to do? Kill me? Because like, I felt like I was dying most of, like during filming, the panic attacks and the stress. I, I felt like I, every weekend I would come back just exhausted and living on about three hours of sleep for 10 weeks. And I didn't expect to get to 10 weeks. I, I still call it 10 weeks. I don't even say the final. I did not expect to make it to the end. I, I was like, week one, week two, maybe at most. And, and I'll be home, you know, home free. And 10 weeks later, I was exhausted. And there I was. So I suppose I was really naive to the fact that anything was ever going to happen. So that's why I didn't even, I took it with a pinch of salt. For Abdul to do that, though, I mean, since I've known you, you come to life when you're, when you're on the media. You, you, you're an absolute natural. But I was, I was saying to somebody before that when you come and do Sunday brunch, then the lead up to before we go on air, you're very insular. And, you know, you've talked very openly about your kind of anxiety and self-doubt, et cetera, et cetera. And yet when the camera is on you, now that you're very at home in a TV studio, but do you still get that same feeling of anxiety before you do anything? Yeah, I think I suffer, like many, with imposter syndrome. Like, I, I have to watch my... I kind of... Sometimes I step back and I watch Sunday Brunch. My kids watch Sunday Brunch. We watch it because it's fun and it's exciting and it's lively and, and you guys are silly on it and we love that. And so it's just a lovely Sunday morning for us. And to then suddenly be on the other side, I have incredible imposter syndrome. I can't understand why I'm there. My agent will ring me and say, right, would you like to do Sunday? They'd love to have you on. I'm like, are you sure? Or have you just, have you forced them? Have you forced them to have me on? And she's like, no, they actually quite like you. I was like, oh, okay. So I have like incredible imposter syndrome. Like I can't understand why anybody would want me on. But there is that moment when the camera turns on and, and I am cooking because that's kind of where I'm happiest is when I'm cooking and when I'm and you, you always laugh and say my recipes are always like drunk recipes, but I don't drink. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm gonna, you know, what, I'm going to talk about that in the second part about the way in which you cook. All right, well, let, let's go back then. Let, let's go back to the to the start. Then you said, you know, you're most at home when you're kind of cooking. So. 
What's the, the thing that kind of got you interested in cooking, do you think? I have, like, I, farming is in our blood. So my granddad was a farmer. So he did, uh, he's, he was a rice farmer and a buffalo farmer. So he, he farmed buffaloes for their milk and he would sell milk at the market. And he was a rice farmer. That was his thing. You know, he was, he died knee deep in mud, you know, like he was always, his knees were always covered in mud. So cooking, growing the land, being sustainable was all a part of, without really realizing, was a part of my life. And I never really thought about it because my granddad was in Bangladesh. I was born here and we would go every year and this contrast of different worlds of living off the land. And, you know, in contrast, we were here, you know, buying meat in a supermarket. So cooking and farming has been a part of, is a part of my blood. And, you know, my dad, you know, they, they, my parents are immigrants. They um, came here at a young age and, and working class and, you know, saving was always in the, at the heart of our eating and our cooking. And so we would eat cuts of meat that people were throwing away or offal or cow's tongue or brain, that, that kind of stuff. And it was being chucked away. Like now you, it's expensive, but back then it was being thrown away. So we cooking and experimenting and using what we have has been a part of my life, my whole life. And I hadn't really realized that till I had my own children. It's interesting you say about the things that you used to eat and you look at that now and you think, you know, that's because we didn't have a lot of money, et cetera, et cetera. But when you were growing up, did that feel that that was the case? Just well, this is just what we eat. You know, what you do is what you do. Or were you aware of the fact that it was a struggle to, to get good food for you as kids? I think my dad is um, the biggest, like, charmer in the whole wide world. Like, he's so charming. And he would never, uh, my dad's not the kind of person, and he doesn't feel sorry for himself. He just gets on with stuff. He just, he's one of those people, and I adore him for it, because even when he didn't have much, um, he never made us feel like we didn't. He, it was just the way we lived. And I think, actually, it was just the way we lived, because he tried so hard to keep us connected to our roots. and. Back in Bangladesh, if you killed an animal, you didn't kill it in vain. You ate it nose to tail, you know, you use the leather, you use the skin, you use it all for something, you sell it on, but in nothing, nothing gets thrown away. And so I think because that's the way my dad was raised, he tried so hard to raise us that way. And in the process, he just got lots of free offal, which I think is great. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? So he, it was fantastic. He was teaching us a lesson, but we were eating for free. And like, that's like win-win, right? You know, I, I love that. I, I, that conversation, it's interesting because when you, whenever you interview people, then sometimes you'll hear a recollection, a story that somebody tells, and you get something out of it that you think, I've never sort of heard that before. And your, your passion and love in that story is so beautiful because that absolute passion of like, you know, the, the pride in, in your background and your dad and equally your approach to kind of like, if you're going to kill an animal, don't kill it in vain. But on a lighter note, what's this story about your dad and a chainsaw for cooking? Oh, my dad's the best. Honestly, he's the best. We should have him on a podcast one day. He would just swear mostly, but he's hilarious. <laughs> he would, you'd have to bleep him out all the time. He's just like, he's just a wonderful human. He, and he, he did this. He's, um, he rang my mum. You know, when we had landlines and no mobiles. He rang my mum on the landline, used the butcher's phone and said, I'm coming. And the butchers were, I think it, it, you could throw a stone. It was five seconds from our house. So dad said, I'm coming. And, and then, so my mom put the phone down and said, open the door, your dad's coming. And you, you could see her rolling her eyes thinking, what is he up to? And he said, clear the dining table. So mom's there clearing the dining, not really knowing, because he he's an eccentric. He's completely mad hatter, my dad is. Clear the dining table. So there he is, like literally five doors down the butchers and he's got the sheep on his back. 
and he's coming up and he's borrowed the butcher's jacket so he doesn't mess his clothes. So he's <laughs> borrowed this oversized butcher's jacket, got the sheep on his back. And he's a small man, strong, but small. And he's dragging this sheep up and he's like, get out of my way. And everybody's out of the way. And then he smacks this sheep on the, on the dining table. <laughs> and the week previous to this, we'd gone to a Sunday market and he'd been cleaning this chainsaw. And I didn't know what it was for, because what does my dad need a chainsaw for? We live in a terraced house in the heart of Luton. I was like, we have no oak trees or anything. No, we have no trees to take down. So I don't know what he needs a chainsaw for. That's what he needed the chainsaw for. So he said, who wants to learn how to butcher a sheep? And we're like, me, 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 me. I was always very enthusiastic. How old are you at this point? Like maybe 11, maybe 12. (laughs) Um, And he said, who wants to watch me? And me and my brother, we were always really interested in everything my dad did. And the the others were like, we're off. And they were off. And he showed us. And he said, how long do you think it'll take me to do this? And I said, "Uh, 10 minutes. He goes, don't be ridiculous. I said, one hour. He said, one hour, 20 minutes, and this will be done. And that was it. One hour, 20 minutes. He butchered (laughs) the whole thing, by which time he had started a fire in the garden and put a pot on the fire, which was big enough to put three of his kids in. And then he cooked the whole thing, the whole thing. I I love it. I absolutely love it. So outside of cooking, one of the things that is really important that, uh, and I know you're aware of it, you've become an incredible role model. I think on, on many levels, both culturally, but I also I think one of the things that I loved that you've always said is that you were a stay-at-home mum before the success on Bake Off. And you mentioned at the top of this that, that you got a little bit of negative response. People saying, oh, you know, you, you're just a housewife, you're just a home mum. But you've always been massively proud of the fact that that role of being at home and raising your kids and looking after your kids, it, I mean, you know, the times when I've been on my own with my kids, It's an incredibly hard job to do. Are you conscious of the fact that you've become a role model? Yeah, I mean, I'd be lying if I said that I wasn't conscious of it because I I have these conversations all the time. And I kind of, I become quite shy about the whole thing because I just think, oh, I kind of only ever wanted to be a role model to my children and my nephews and nieces. And obviously that's because of the job that I do, that's become much, is magnified and it's become much bigger. And I understand the responsibility of being a role model because I know sometimes when I'm speaking to the kids and I say something, I think I said, I can't remember what I said but I think it might have been did I say damn I can't remember I might have used that word I know and my little girl said mommy no we're, we're, we're editing that out you don't say words like that is that actually a bad word <laughs> no <laughs> you want to see what I've written in my notes it's really not a bad word <laughs> so see I said that word while I was filming something and I said it and my little girl said mommy she said how can you even speak like that and she's very musical theater she said how do you even speak like that mommy that's not okay she said is this how you speak when you're at work and I said no, <laughs> no. I, I mean I didn't realize it was bad but you know I understand that it's magnified now to much more than just my children and my nephews and nieces and it does make me really nervous because it makes me kind of question and second guess what I do but Equally, it makes me realize that, you know, being somebody of a member of the BAME community and being a a Muslim woman in an industry that is, I suppose, in some ways isn't catered for me. You know, there's no space for me because there aren't people like me in this industry. So I now have a massive responsibility to keep doing what I'm doing because it is important because there are people like me who will younger girls, women, kids who will look at me and think I'll probably be the first person that they'll see that they can relate to on television. And that's really important to uh, maintain that because otherwise, where else, where else will they get that? Um, where else will they find a role model? I think the thing is, though, you know, because you're a very positive person, but you're not afraid to 
open up. You know, this whole thing about, as I say, being proud of being a, being a, a stay-at-home mum, being not afraid to say, yes, I suffer from anxiety, yes, I've had kind of issues with mental health, etc., etc. I think that if you look at kind of what I would like my kids to see as a role model, then you are it. You know, I, I think that outside of, obviously, there's a huge level of kind of you being a role model because, like you say, lots of kind of girls and lots of people of, of different creeds and colours will kind of see you as the first person they've seen. But I think just as a human being, I think what you project is a very positive image as well. Yeah, it's not always been easy because I I have these conversations quite often and I talk about there's this perception that it's been really easy just to come out and say, oh, you know, I suffer with mental health issues or the fact that being a stay at home mom isn't a negative thing or being a member of the BAME community. It's not always been that easy to talk about it because when you work in the public eye, it's, it's always met with some sort of scrutiny. It's never always completely positive. So it's, there are moments where I've I've questioned myself and said, do I want to talk about this? Is this something that I want to even get involved in? And the truth is, I have no choice now but to be involved because I am who I am. And I think the less I care what people think, the more I can be myself. And I think that in itself is a lesson for all of us, no matter who we are, what color, what creed, what religion is to say, actually, if we care less about what everybody thinks, we can be more of who we are. And that's really important. And that's what I want my kids to see. And if, if that's the role model that I am, then I hope that's good for everyone. I hope that is something that lots of people can look and say, you know what, if not caring what other people think means that we can be who we are unashamedly, then that's the best role model I can be. Right, we're going to go from very heavy to uh, very light. So, so every week on the podcast, our chefs are going to be taking up a little challenge. Now, you can have any cut of meat, any bit of fish, any bit of veg. Then you've also got to come up with a marinade or a rub, a sauce and a cold side dish to accompany it. Now, there is a twist, Nadia. You've got to be cooking outdoors and it's got to be on a barbecue. And <laughs> the thing is... You actually only have 45 seconds to sell this dish to me. Okay. Now, of course, because you're the first person that we're doing, you are setting the standards. So it can be anything at all. But I am sitting... You are now tempting me. Bear in mind, I've got lots of other people who are going to come on the show. I've got to decide, do I like the sound of what you've got? So... We need to get a little uh, 45 seconds. Hold on, we're just we're just winding up, just putting the just tightening the rubber band. You are actually timing me on the uh, on the yeah. Oh my gosh! You've got 45 seconds, and obviously, if you if you come out too early, then you need to fill it with the song. <laughs> <laughs> All right, are you ready? Three, two, one. Go. Firstly, I'm Bangladeshi and we always cook outside, so this is perfect for me. I would go for tilapia or some sea bass and I would marinate that with orange, garlic, with the zest, the juice and loads of coriander, blitz that up, marinate that, do that on the barbecue. And with that, I would serve a fermented scotch bonnet sauce, which I have always got fermented scotch bonnets in my fridge, blitz that up. And that is just as it is, absolutely fiery, sweet and delicious and just got that little bit of a tang from the ferment. And then with that, I would serve an apple chutney, which is grated apple, lots of coriander and burnt garlic. Ten seconds. Burn the flesh, burn the skin, mush that up, get that in there. And it is zesty and delicious and smoky. That was 42.85 seconds. You know what? That was that was that sounds delicious. The marinade in particular sounds fantastic. Now, you said then that, you know, being Bangladesh, you're used to kind of cooking outside. So do you barbecue? I mean, I've seen some of your stuff. I know that you do. What, what do you like to do? 
we barbecue all year round. So we prefer to barbecue in the cold because in the heat, you just, it's just stressful. I find it really stressful in the heat. So in the winter, we love that's like, because growing up, you know, spending our summers in Bangladesh, the way to get the kids to learn to cook, my granddad would dig a hole, set a fire and say, go grab that chicken in particular. He would point out one chicken and we would have to run, spend the afternoon running around catching this chicken. Then we would kill the chicken. Then we would learn how to chop the chicken up. And then we would cook that on the open fire. So we learned to cook with, a, with my granddad. Barbecuing and cooking outside, it comes completely natural to me. It's something we do. But we love doing it in the autumn and winter. And I hate the idea that barbecues get put away when it gets cold. Keep them out. They create heat. Get outside, get a coat on and get out there barbecuing. I love, it's what we love doing, um, especially when it snows. When it snows, we get the barbecue out. It's better. I think so. Uh, it's much better because you've got more moisture in the air. And like you say, there's something delicious, isn't there? You're out in the cold and you've got that heat of the barbecue. It, it's just heaven. I cooked my Christmas turkey on it a couple of years ago. And it was really, oh, I loved it. All my family were really, really suspicious. Nodded. They were going like, what? What's wrong with your oven? <laughs> but it was fantastic. Smoky, delicious flavour cooked over coals. It was so, so delicious. It was really good. It, it was fantastic. Yes. That was a, a very, very good first one. Uh, you've set the standard there. And I, I'm, I'm interested because we've, we've got Tom Kerridge on in a few weeks' time. And Tom was on Sunday brunch a while ago and he was cooking an omelette. And you know when they do the omelette challenge on, on Saturday Kitchen? Yeah. And normally it sort of, sort of takes 45 seconds. So Tom said to me before he came on, I've got 10 minutes to cook an omelette. He said, I might, you know, I might just have to kind of like fill a little bit because I don't think I've, I've really got enough to do on the show. It took him 14 and a half minutes to cook an omelette. No. Because he was wittering <laughs> on so much. It was absolutely brilliant. So I'm looking forward to Tom doing 45 seconds, by which stage oh. is just enough oohs and ers knowing Tom. <laughs> All right, now, before we go on, we're giving away a Genesis 2 gas barbecue and Weber Connect smart grilling hub in every single episode of Grilling. Genesis 2 is a premium gas barbecue that makes it easy to get great tasting food. The smart grilling hub is an accessory which connects to your phone via an app. It guides you step by step through preparing and cooking, even telling you when you need to flip your food and when it's ready to eat. For your chance to win this fantastic prize, head to weber.com forward slash grilling. That's weber.com forward slash grilling, where you'll be able to find the terms and conditions and the closing date for entries. The competition is open to UK residents only. The Weber website is also the place to find a host of tips for barbecuing in all weathers and seasons, as well as a fantastic range of recipes, from low and slow pulled pork to butterfly leg of lamb with anchovies and lemon. Now, you said that I'm very critical of the way that you come up with recipes. You said, they, you said are you drunk when you write these recipes? And I said, Simon, I don't, I don't drink. So, yeah, I mean, they are drunk recipes, but I don't drink. So they come from somewhere, right? <laughs> well, the thing is, I think anybody who has an interest in food, they know that kind of there's a, there's a big difference between sort of success and failure. And I think a lot of people, when they cook at home, they'll, they'll slavishly follow a recipe or... They'll then get confident that, you know, their twist on spaghetti bolognese, they'll add, you know, they'll add tomato ketchup into it or they'll add Worcester sauce and that'll be their little take on it. But I always think that from people involved in our profession, then the way in which we go about creating recipes, I think is always interesting. So when you're sitting down, so when, when you've got a project on the go or you're writing a book, do you have a process that you have about writing recipes? Well, I don't know. I just kind of... 
I write down a list of things that I think I want to cook and, and chapters and I kind of write things down. And what happens is it's really odd because there's this moment while I'm doing the recipe that I think, oh, that would work really well. And, and it, is, it is a little bit, it's a little bit ad hoc like that. I just kind of, it just happens. And then I'm like, oh, that's good. And then I think that's going to work. And then I do it and then it works. And what I love about doing that is that I test every recipe at home. You know, whether I'm writing a book or a, or a column or whatever is everything gets tested in my house and my kitchen is very small and it, it's not suited to uh, domestic cooking and recipe testing but I have to make do with what I have so I kind of cook and the kids come in and, and the kitchen is covered with lots of different things and they will go through still in their uniform taste everything and, and tell me what they think and they try and guess what I've done differently and and I love that Actually, so much of my testing and, uh, and experimenting, uh, my kids try and, and they're my biggest critics. Like they're the ones that if they don't like something, they'll just say that's that doesn't work or, or maybe that's got too much salt in it. Or maybe, you know, they don't give me ideas, but they tell me when it's not bad, uh, when it's not good. I like that because I remember you cooked carrot cake bargies. Yes. Chorus, yes, and I and that was actually when I said to you they were kind of like you know that they were kind of yeah. that it was a drunken recipe which loads of people on Twitter gave loads of for saying of course she doesn't drink she's my friend it's an expression yes but I think that when you create recipes you almost develop a, a skill that says I know that will work even before you made those for example I would imagine you thought I know they're going to work and I now can't wait to make them oh yeah. Yes, absolutely. Like, you know, in the moment, like I, that was the recipe. Well, that was, one, that was one of the recipes that I, I, I lay in bed thinking, well, hold on, we fry donuts and <laughs> yeah. that's bread dough. So we bake it too. If that's acceptable, why can't you fry cake? And that was, that's just kind of my thinking. But also I think my um, complete disregard for, for tradition has meant that I can cook however I want. That's not being disrespectful. It's just growing up in a home where I cooked and ate Bangladeshi food, but where I went to school where I had English food as, you know, pies and hot pots and uh, chips and beans. And, and, and to me, that was English food. And uh, at home, I was eating Bangladeshi food. So where the two worlds collided, somewhere in between, there's a place for us people in between who kind of don't fit in either world. That complete disregard for my mom's recipes and English recipes means that I kind of do whatever I want and I know that ruffles a few feathers, but I don't actually care that much because actually <laughs> it, it creates something delicious. And what's wrong with that? Like what's wrong with creating something delicious? Um, and I completely like understand that kind of cultural um, appropriation and, and, and not taking things and, and changing them too much. But like, as long as I, for me, as long as I've learned from somebody who has grown up in that culture or uh, understands that recipe and I know where that's come from, that's cooking. That's the joy of cooking is to be able to take something and twist it and make it your own. And I think that's really special and we should be able to do that. You use the word delicious um, when you're saying that. And I think that that is absolutely it, isn't it? The, the ultimate thing being, if you sit around a table, friends, family, on your own, the word you want to have that comes out of your mouth is that was delicious. Yeah. That for me has to transcend everything else. Because I mean, let, let's face it, you know, there's a load of food snobbery. I'm not a trained chef either. You know, I, I taught myself how to cook. And I think that sometimes not being remotely rude to kind of people who've gone through tremendous classical training and I wish that I had but I think sometimes almost by our ignorance what the better word then you end up kind of creating things that you shouldn't do in inverted commas and that that's a great way to cook 
Yeah, and I, I don't know about you, but for me, Simon, for sure, like it's one of the things that makes me cook and keeps me cooking is the fact it's it's quite a selfish thing. It's not even I don't even cook for other people. Not really. I cook because it, I like what cooking does for me. Like I love it when I cook and that's completely selfish. Like I love it when people love my food, but I love it that I, I love that I've made it. And that's really selfish, but it makes me feel really good to know that I've put time and effort and everything that I've got to make something really special or delicious for someone. And for me, it's completely selfish. I just like feeding people. Yeah. The joy of feeding is like nothing else. So if some if someone's going to start cooking, say, say, say somebody has got a desire that they, they want to kind of improve what they do, how would you sort of suggest that somebody goes about just expanding their repertoire a bit? I think start small. I think the, the kitchen is one of those, it's quite territorial. I'm quite territorial when it comes to my kitchen. It's taken me a long time to let go. There are moments where the kids will come in and say, oh, mom, can we just, I'm like, mm, yeah, don't. Because sometimes they want to use something in the fridge that I need for something else. And I'm like, yes, you can, but don't touch this, this and this. And they're like, well, that leaves nothing. So um, <laughs> I can become quite territorial in the kitchen because it's my work and my home. So I can't really differentiate between the two. So anything with a pink label means don't touch it or eat it in our house. Um, but I think for anyone who wants to learn to cook, I think it's about feeling confident in that space. And it's the little things that I learned growing up with my dad is my dad said he would go in and eat, say, you don't need a baby knife, just take the knife. So he would give me his enormous Uber chef's knives and say, there you go cut the onion I'm like yeah but dad how and so he'd show me and say I've shown you now now the worst that's going to happen is you're going to lose a finger and I think the rea- <laughs> seriously but the reality of my dad just saying you might lose a finger makes me more careful and makes me really understand the seriousness of using a very sharp knife and so I think for anyone who wants to get into the kitchen and is nervous I'd say just um, either take my dad with you and he will show you the ropes or get in there and allow yourself to make mistakes. Because I think if you allow yourself to make mistakes, you become more confident. And, and I think that's definitely helped me in the kitchen through the years. I think I think it's a good mantra for life, isn't it? I think that, you know, don't don't let your mistakes define you. You know, that if you make a mistake... Absolutely. You know, wh- whether it be with kind of cooking or whether it be, I don't know, whatever, decorating a room or, or whatever, something more serious, then don't let it define you. Just kind of go on with it. I always think my thing with cooking, I always say to people, if you want to expand your repertoire, the biggest thing, and I know that you're an advocate of this, is keep tasting. You know, as you're making stuff taste, 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 taste all the time, then you know, you try, then it's prevention rather than cure, isn't it? So if you sort of go, I oh, do you know what, I've, I've got too much cumin in there. If you, you're, I've not got enough, not got enough is what you want, isn't it? So you can add a little touch more. So I think that that's, that's always a goodie. Yeah, and it's the making the mistakes is what allows you to rectify those mistakes, which is something I did when I was on Bake Off quite often. If I did a recipe and it worked out first time, I would make it six. I had a, so I became really obsessive about making everything 11 times. I don't know why, but 11 was my number. And I would make it till I got something wrong in order to learn how to rectify it if it went wrong in the tent. So that's kind of what cooking's like, like keep doing things, keep making the same things over and over again. And when you make a mistake or something happens, you learn to rectify it. And that's kind of cooking and life, really. I like that. All right, now, before I let you go, Nadia, now this is a question that I'm going to be asking all of our guests. What I'm after, I want an unassuming go-to place that you love in the UK. I don't want it to be a fancy restaurant. I don't want it to be a Michelin-starred restaurant. You know, we're looking at things like sandwich bars, a coffee shop, a street food stall, or or even... Um, I'll give you a small family-run restaurant, but it's got to be small. 
what have you come up with? Where should people go? What is your? Because we'll make a list of them for everybody. I mean, obviously, the problem is you'll you'll reveal your little secret place, but I want to go. Yeah. So I, it's um, there's this place in. Like, I had really had. A, I was thinking about this earlier, and I'm thinking, oh goodness, this because we. I I lived in Leeds for nine years, eight nine years. And uh, when you've got four small kids, like you only really ever go to Pizza Hut, let's face it, free salad and lots of pizza, <laughs> just easy. But yeah, so there's this wonderful place in Leeds Market. Leeds Market, indoor market is one of the biggest in Europe. And um, Great market, beautiful building as well. Oh my goodness, the building. And then you've got like the corn exchange, not far. I love Leeds. And the indoor market is amazing because I would always go in there just to get some fish and there's this wonderful antiques dealer. But anyway, that's a whole other, that's a whole other podcast. <laughs> That'd be the second time you're on. <laughs> um, there is this wonderful place that opened up and it's called Yorkshire Wrap. And it's a teeny tiny stall in, in the market. And, and it's not been there very long, but it is the most, it's the kind of stuff that I would concoct in my, in my sleep or out of nowhere. But basically what they do is make deflated Yorkshire puddings <laughs> on sh- on trays so where you would normally get a yorkshire pudding and you wouldn't touch the oven and you want it to rise they deliberately open the oven to let the air in to deflate these yorkshire puddings and they make them in sheets and then they fill it with a chicken dinner oh what that sounds delicious <laughs> cabbage uh, roast potatoes stuffing chicken lamb you name it whatever you want they stuff it, then they douse the whole thing in gravy, roll it up, and you literally eat your Sunday roast out of a Yorkshire pudding wrapped up. That is genius, isn't it? I know. That is absolute genius, isn't it? Is it? That's one of those things there about you. I'm, I'm listening, thinking, why didn't I think of that? Yeah, exactly. Simon, why didn't we think of it? I know. But it's such a cool place because I think it's taking something as, you know, like Sunday lunch is such a big deal. It, there's a whole kind of, it's a whole process. Um, waking up, having breakfast, and getting that Sunday roast on, and it's it's a it's a relaxed yet stressful process on a Sunday sometimes. But to take all of the joy of that and sticking it in a wrap, I love that. <laughs> <laughs> I do. I, I think it's absolutely brilliant. So, are you working on a recipe at the moment? What what what's your plan today? I want to know what you're doing before we before I let you go. I want to know what the, this day has got planned for you. I have got a load of ironing that needs doing, um, and I'm going to make some jam because. Like I didn't get to, I have so much ironing. I've got like three loads. I'm literally sat in the spare room because the ironing is so um, overflowing. It's created a lovely little like studio effect in here. That's how much laundry I have. And then I'm going to go down and I'm going to make some jam and I've got to clean out the litter tray. So yeah, I might test a recipe in between all of that. (laughs) Right. I said at the start of this that you are on the brink of being a national treasure. You've proved today that you actually are a national treasure. Because no matter what, I mean, you know, I always, always love speaking. I love it when you're on the show. You're always full of joy and you're also full of normality, which, which I love. Never, ever change. Thank you. Uh, it's, it's a pleasure. Listen, thank you so much. Uh, enjoy the ironing and I'll drop mine round later if that's all right. Yeah, no, I love ironing. Anytime, anytime. Do you know what I do? I, I really like ironing. <gasps> I love ironing. It's my favourite thing. You know when you do shirts? Yeah. You know when you do shirts? I really like the, the yoke, you know, from the, from the shoulder bit. So under the collar, I like that. Yes. I, I think if you see somebody who doesn't iron the yoke on their shirts, then I think that they're living in a poor place, really. It's just their, their world needs to change. It's For me, if you don't iron the yoke properly on a shirt, it's like not buttering the toast right to the edge. Exactly. Just never never get me on the hoovering. Ironing any day, but never the hoovering. Hate hoovering. I don't like dusting. 
Dustin does it for me. I don't. I just don't like Dustin. You know my kids do that. My kids do that on a Sunday. That's really good. I don't even pay them. They do it on a Sunday, three hours. This is going to be another whole podcast, isn't it? A whole podcast, yes. Yeah, domestic, <laughs> domestic chores with famous chefs. Um, Nadia, thank you so much for joining me on Grilling. Oh, Simon, thank you so much for having me. Thanks so much to Nadia for her time. Such a lovely chat. And hopefully her barbecue recipe is giving you food for thought as to what's possible on a Weber grill. Head to the website for plenty more ideas about what you can achieve yourself as the night's draw in, like their winter superfood stew, perhaps. And if you go to weber.com forward slash grilling, not only will you find details of the competition, you'll also be able to get a free barbecue Bible cookbook with a purchase of selected accessories. So do subscribe to the podcast via your preferred provider and tell your friends about us if you fancy it. Now, we'll be back next week talking to Gok Wan about making the unlikely transition from style guru to chef. Can't wait for that. He's always great fun, Gok. Now, Grilling was brought to you in association with Weber Barbecues and is an off-script production produced by Ben Backhouse and executive producer Zach Brown. I'm Simon Rimmer. Thanks for joining us. Grilling.